Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, uh, I hope you didn't get blown away uh, this week and you managed to fight through Storm Eunice. You're here. You made it to church. Uh, congratulations. Sometimes that's all you need on a Sunday morning, isn't it? You made it to central London. And um, this might not look like a church, uh, but uh, this is church this morning because wherever the people of God gather together, that is, uh, that is where church happens. So this morning we are continuing with our series on the book, or the letter rather, of one Peter. The Bible, of course, being a collection of letters and books, um, they just decided it to call the book, um, the book of all books. And so we are reading from one letter within a whole, which is put next to a whole lot of other letters, I think. So <clears throat> I think we're going to have it up on the screen this morning. Thanks, Yuyin. Um, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, and I think this is perhaps the second to last week of this series. Have you been enjoying it so far? It's been good, hasn't it? I've actually been really enjoying preparing out of the, the, the letter of Peter. I've actually never written a sermon on, uh, on a scripture from 1 Peter up until uh, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was I last preached. So it's been really, really enjoyable. I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's quite nice doing series, isn't it? It's like watching you know, Netflix and you know, each you know, kind of uh, week builds on the next. Um, And that's what I quite like about series in church as well. Here we go. I'm going to stop talking about silly stuff. And we're going to read from the scripture this morning. Here we are. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says... Oh. (laughs) Did you do that on purpose, Yu Ying? You're messing with me this morning, aren't you? (laughs) In... Sorry, all of you... Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Peter takes that specific text from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And in my Bible and Proverbs, it actually says God mocks proud mockers, which is kind of a bit more bougie, isn't it, really? But Peter says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This community, uh, rather a a whole lot of communities, um, are uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, Persecution has broken out in Jerusalem, and so... Paul has planted churches in that area, and this Peter writes this letter in about 62 AD to these churches, so about 10 years after Paul has written his first letter to that Galatian community in the same area. So that's a little bit of context for you this morning. Father, we commit this word to you this morning. It is your word, Father, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, we know that the lights won't change us this morning. We know that the worship band won't change us. We know that no preacher could change us, but Holy Spirit, you can change anybody. And we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you that you are amongst us, Jesus. We thank you that there are other communities just like this one happening all over London 
and all over the world right now. We thank you that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And we thank you that we all made it into central London this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I want to start this morning by embarrassing myself. It's an isolating place being up here on the platform, and I'm just going to put myself out there for your sake, if that's all right, this morning. I'm going to tell you one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me. It was uh, a few years ago now, and I was 23 years old, not too long ago. <laughs> um, I was 23 years old. I was in London, and I had just uh, begun an internship uh, a paid internship with Gary Clark, who used to be the lead pastor um, over there at Hillsong Church. And I was uh, only a few weeks into um, this internship, and I had responsibilities for different things, um, small things, logistical things. And um, it, just a few weeks into my internship, we had um, a staff uh, retreat. And so part of my responsibility was to was to get us there and to help set things up at the staff retreat. And so we drove down there, I think it was in Sussex somewhere, arrived and started to set some things up. And um, I had a colleague who I was working with who used to have my job who had now moved on to, to the communications and media department, which is useful for your information, so hold that in your head. Um, and so we were, we were you know, setting the, the place up together. And he gets this phone call. Um, from a driver, a guy who was uh, driving uh, Pastor Bobby and Brian down to the staff retreat, who at that time were the senior pastors of Hillsong Church. And, um, and, so, and so my friend is talking to them on the phone. This is, you know, early, early days, Google Maps, you know, Apple Maps, all that kind of thing. And so it was a little bit, you know, sketchy and all of that kind of thing. Um, so he, he talks him through the directions of how to get to this place because it was sort of obscure in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then he, he had something that took him away from the conversation. So he hands me his phone. Silly idea, wasn't it? 23-year-old kid who's just been handed a phone. And it was the height of um, Facebook stuff. Everyone was on Facebook at that time. Everyone was on Twitter at that time. And I had this, this friend who was um, a campus pastor, and he was supposed to be a lot more mature than me at the time, and he was supposed to be, you know, just, yeah, just a bit more mature. But he said, hey, what can we do with this phone? Why don't you write something? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, let's do that. Because boys are so silly when they get together and think of silly things. And so... We're now scheming about what we can write on his Facebook or change his, you know, marital status. I don't know, silly things, right? Stupid, just stupid stuff. And so we jump, I jump on his Twitter account, and I'm scrolling through his Twitter. And I'm thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to be so funny and write something so silly on his Twitter account. And then everyone's going to laugh. <laughs> so anyway, along with my friend, which I'm dragging into this, <laughs> I craft this silly silly statement, a toilet humor, essentially, and uh, talk about going to the toilet. You're never going to look at me the same again. You're never going to look at me the same. Something about dribbly poo. I don't know. In the morning, it was something along those lines. I know, terrible. It was, wasn't it? I was 23 years old. And I, I wrote it, 
And as I crafted this not witty statement, I pushed tweet. And I expected the tweet to come up on my friend's name. But being the head of the communications and media department, the tweet didn't come up as my friend's name. The tweet came up as Hillsong Church London. And this tweet went out to 10,000 people. And it was in those days, do you remember when Twitter, you couldn't like delete the tweet. You could delete it from your own like feed, but if somebody else had seen it, like if thousands of people had already seen the tweet on their feed, it was there forever. So I had put something out into the world on behalf of Hillsong Church London, which was completely and entirely inappropriate. Safe to say, the situation escalated pretty quickly. Bobby and Brian Houston, they, they, they phoned Carp, who was my friend, who this guy was in charge of the community. What's happening with the, you know, social media accounts at Hillsong London? What's going on? And my friend, you know, had to talk them through. Gary got involved, all of this. And what did I do? I did a Jonah. I ran from the situation. I went to my room. I stuck my head under the pillow and I went to sleep. A few hours later, the situation was resolved. Somebody sent out a tweet saying, apologies for the last tweet. Our account was compromised, but the situation has now been resolved. Gary made me stand up in front of all of the staff and in front of Brian Houston that night and tell that story. And Brian Houston, straight-faced, got up after that and he said, well, you brought the name of Hillsong to a whole nother level, sewer level. So that was the day that I brought down the name of Hillsong. <laughs> I'm kidding. I wonder today, using that story, how it is that you cope when bad things happen. Do you fight? May it be self-inflicted or not. Do you fight back? Do you freeze? Are you paralyzed and overwhelmed by the situation? Or do you do a Jonah like me and flee, run for the hills, stick your head in the sand, and pretend like none of it is going on? How do you cope when bad things happen? This text that we have just read from is at the very end of Peter's letter. It is the culmination of the second half of this letter. It is, you could say, the climactic conclusion of everything that he has said from chapter 3. He has been dealing with suffering. And you could say that this text right here is Peter's prescription for how we are to respond to suffering and anxiety. But before he deals with our response to suffering and anxiety, he addresses his hearers' expectations of the Christian faith. I'm sure today that we have all entered the Christian faith with some sort of expectation. Maybe for some of us, we were told that we were going to get richer and that life was going to be really, really really good when we became Christians and everything was going to sort itself out and life was going to be a bed of roses. We were going to be comfortable and happy and things were going to be great. And then bad stuff happens. 
like COVID-19, like these last two years. And we go, huh? What's going on? Is this right? Is this normal? Is this what I should expect from the Christian life when bad things happen to me? Remember, his hearers here are being marginalized. They're being persecuted. Some of them are oppressed in different situations by their own communities and their own societies. They are having to deal with and make sense of their suffering, their anxiety, their worries, their concerns for the future in this context. And Peter is saying, it's okay. And he helps us deal with suffering and deal with anxiety um, in the context of the Christian faith. In fact, in chapter 4, this is what he says to these communities of people who are trying to make sense somehow of the suffering and anxiety. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, this is part of the Christian life. Get ready for bad things to happen. Get ready for some suffering. In fact, since Peter started following Jesus, some parts of his life, I'm sure, have gotten much better. Hope, peace, joy, faith, so on and so forth. But there's other parts of his life which haven't looked so hot. In fact, after Jesus was died and resurrected from the dead, Peter has been reprimanded and imprisoned by his own government, the Sanhedrin, on three occasions. On one of those occasions, on one of those occasions, he was flogged by the state. Forty lashes minus one, most commentators agree, a severe Roman punishment that is designed to bring you within inches of your life, scourged across your chest, scourged across your back. Peter is literally carrying the scars of what it means to be a Christian. Not only that, but he has seen one of his best friends in the world be murdered by the very state that he is living under. James, the Peter of John, uh, the brother of John, James, who Peter has spent years doing ministry with a co-partner, one of his best friends in the world. He's lost. Herod beheaded him. Not only that, but one of the emerging leaders in Jerusalem, Stephen, whom Peter and others handpicked to uh, distribute food to the uh, uh, widows. And Stephen was doing incredible things. Stephen himself was murdered, no doubt a good friend of Peter's. He has survived two waves of state-initiated persecution against Christians, and undoubtedly he has seen many of his friends in Jerusalem displaced across the Roman Empire. Peter is familiar with suffering, anxiety, pain, hurt, worry, concern. This is not an abstract concept for Peter. He is acquainted with it. Now, it's important to note that, that Peter is not just speaking from his own experience here either, as if to say, my truth should be your truth. He is speaking primarily from the famous last words of Jesus, and he is recalling the time where they had the Last Supper just 11 of them, Pete, uh, Judas the informant, had already left to go and betray Jesus. And it's just 11 of these young men, some of them just teenagers, early 20s, young guys who are with Jesus who don't know what's about to happen. Jesus, of course, knows that he is about to go to the cross. And he prepares 
these young men for the future, for what life is going to look like without him. These are Jesus' famous last words. Now, last words are pretty important, aren't they? And I could think of some pretty cool like last words to give those disciples, words that mean something to us as a culture. We could go back in time and we could say, hey, look, you know, this would have been pretty cool. Jesus could have said something like this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, boys. Go out and get them. Now, that wasn't Jesus. That was Nietzsche, who was far from a Christian. Or he could have said, be the change that you want to see in the world. That wasn't Jesus either. That was Gandhi. Jesus didn't say any of those nice things. You know what he says? These famous last words to his disciples. He said, hey, boys, in this world, you will have trouble. Really? I'm happy to bring you hope this morning. That's me. I'm done. (laughs) In this world, you will have trouble. He is shaping the expectations of a Christian life for his disciples. He's saying, guys, it's not going to be all perfect. It's not going to be a bed of roses. Listen, in this world, you're going to experience trouble. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you. Man, is that what I signed up for? (laughs) I didn't know that when I first got saved. (laughs) But fortunately for us, this is not the end of the statement. Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Whilst Nietzsche and Gandhi seek to anchor our worldview in self-sufficiency. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Jesus seeks to remove our sufficiency on self and seeks to anchor our trust and our dependency and our reliance on him. He says, yeah, you're going to have some trouble. Things aren't going to be perfect. You'll experience some suffering some pain, some hurt, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I've overcome the system of the world, sin and death. I will be victorious. And because of that, you can have hope. Isn't that good news this morning? That we don't have to rely solely on ourselves to get through all of the trouble and the hardship and the challenges of life, but we have someone who has overcome and we can anchor our lives to him. Amen? So after redefining the expectations of the Christian life, Peter redirects his his hearers to how they are to respond, how they are to cope. Do Do they fight back? Do they freeze or do they flee like me? That rhymed. How is it that they are to respond when trouble and anxiety and challenges come their way? 
he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You remember that scene in A Bug's Life? I don't know if you've watched that film, the very first scene where the bug is like zipping around and he sees the light and he's just attracted to it and he goes to it. It's a bit like that. God is attracted to humility, emptying of self-sufficiency and reliance and dependence on him. He is, he is attracted to it. Listen to what Peter says. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, for he will raise you up in due time. Now, I want to pack this verse just briefly. Peter has been borrowing from the Old Testament throughout this letter. And I spoke a little bit about that in my previous sermon in chapter, based around chapter 2. But he's doing the same here. In fact, he is borrowing from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the writer says this. So we called out to the Lord, speaking of the Israelites when they were in captivity in Egypt, the God of our fathers and the Lord and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, toil, and oppression. Then the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he brought us into this place of a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it is an allusion to deliverance. But Peter is using it in a future tense here. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God who is able to deliver you and he will do so in due time. This is what theologians would describe as an eschatological statement which simply put means the future of things that are to come. Peter is saying that God is able to deliver you from whatever suffering, pain, or trouble, hardship that you find yourself in, in this life. But more importantly, he is able to deliver you from sin and death at the end of the age. And by doing so, by, 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 te- by writing this rather, Peter is trying to anchor his hearers in the transcendent plan of God. He says, what you see right here is not it. God is at work in the world. There is an unfolding plan, and you are a part of that. And he will deliver you by a mighty hand in due course. One of the things that I've discovered about suffering, and this is through my own personal experience over the last few years, is that suffering and pain can distort your perspective of the future. You lose sight of it. You can't see future. And I've experienced this for myself. You become pessimistic. You become cynical. And all you can see is, is what you have in front of you right now. Peter knows this. You remember when Jesus was arrested the night of, and Peter rejected or denied Jesus on three occasions, one of which to a little girl. He was so devastated by what he had done that he went MIA, went back to his home in Galilee, went fishing again until after Jesus was raised to life, he went and appeared to the hurting disciple and restored him and set him up with a hope and a future. When we go through suffering, when we experience pain, 
It's so easy to lose sight of the future. It's so easy to lose hope. And if you're here today, and if you find yourself in that situation, then my prayer for you, and I'm sure some of the team can pray with you afterwards, is that Jesus would, would give you vision again for your future. That he would reignite hope in your heart. That he would give you a hope for the future. Um, I want to believe that for you today. So after Peter speaks of something that is in the future, after he seeks to anchor his hearers in future promises and future deliverance and what is yet to come, it's going to be okay in the end because deliverance is coming. He then turns their attention to how they are to respond in the moment. And he says this, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Now, I don't think Peter is speaking to people who struggle with anxiety disorders necessarily, who struggle with chronic sensations of anxiety every day. If, you've, if you are in that camp and if you do experience that, then I would recommend that you seek out professional help and that you find someone who can help you process that and go through that journey. And there is help available. But I think Peter here is speaking primarily to those people who experience transient sensations of anxiety, which is all of us. Peter knows all about anxiety. He knows that his hearers are experiencing worries, concerns, fears for their future, They're not sure what's going to happen with their livelihood. They've lost respect within their societies. Who knows, some of them might even lose their lives. Families, friends, everything is up for grabs. The future is unpredictable. It's unsure. It's uncertain. And I know that all of us can connect with that over the last two years. The uncertainty, the unpredictability, the unknowingness of the future of our livelihoods, of our careers, of what's going to happen in the world, of is life going to return back to normal? And I'm sure that all of us have experienced levels of anxiety. (laughs) I certainly have over over the last two years. And I love what Peter does here because he is, in essence, drawing on life experience. Remember, he was a fisherman, and he knows about fishing. This is something that he really knows a lot of stuff about. And so he uses a fishing analogy in terms of how we are to respond to anxiety in a Christian way. He uses, oh, there it is. There's Peter looking really cool in uh, The Chosen, Hollywood version. He's looking nice and clean, isn't he? Sharp. He's a good-looking man up there. (laughs) Probably would have been a bit rougher in real life. But look at that. Peter is using this analogy where he's, you know, he knows about nets. Nets are... Look at them. They're heavy. They're cumbersome. They are tangled often. They're soggy. They're hard to manage, aren't they? They look like they're hard to manage anyway. There's so much of it. He's like, how do you do it? But he's like, this is, this is what you do with the net, right? In fishing, you, you chuck it. You throw it out. You cast it out. And so this is what Peter is teaching us to do with anxiety. When we experience it, he's saying, cast our anxieties into the ocean of God's grace. 
this is what we are to do. Cast it out into God because he is able to handle it. He took it on the weight of the cross. In fact, Jesus knows what anxiety is like. The night of his arrest, he was so anxious. The Bible says that he was sweating droplets of blood. He knows what anxiety is like, and you can give it to him. But sometimes, as you can see in this picture, our anxiety is too heavy to carry on our own. I, confession time again. I recall um, over Christmas, actually on Christmas Day, I woke up and I was feeling just about as low as you can possibly feel. And I had no explanation for it. I just felt so low. And I was, I was sort of edgy because of that. And Jessie noticed this in me. So she pulled me up on it. She's like, what's up? What's wrong with you? And um, I was like, nothing's wrong with me. I'm fine, fine. Yeah, right, buddy. You look, don't look fine to me. I was like, I'm good. So she pushed me and pushed me again and went upstairs and had one of those chats, you know. She forced it out of me and she was like, what's going on with you? Why are you edgy? Why are you, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel so low. F- oh, it feels, makes me feel anxious even thinking about that. I feel like I have this anxiety that is just like a, is a knot in my stomach. It's just achy and it's just there. And I don't know what to do with it. I feel like I am being crushed under the weight of my own pessimism. I don't, I don't know. And as we talked about it, she shared in my experience. I didn't project my anxiety onto her. I didn't make her carry it. But just the act of her listening and me being able to talk about the way I was feeling and articulate my emotions to some sort of degree, we were both able, she prayed for me afterwards, we were both able to cast that anxiety off of my life and onto the grace of God and Although I didn't feel 100% afterwards, I felt a lot better. I felt as though a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. It was over 10 years earlier that Paul wrote to the same community in Asia Minor in Galatia and said this to them. Share in one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. And in this way, all men will know that you are my disciples. Share in one another's burdens. Sometimes the weight of that net is just too heavy for us to manage on our own. And it's important that as a community of people, we can journey with each other And we can share with each other where we're at, not projecting our anxieties onto one another, but sharing in that burden and together casting that burden out into the grace of God. And I'm just about to finish and maybe the team can come and join me here on the platform. Cast your cares upon him or your anxieties for he cares for you. I can imagine... Peter as well, 
relying on his memory of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, where he taught, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about, what, or, or about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The reason we are able to cast our cares on him, the reason we are able to look to the future with a sense of hope that he will deliver us from sin and death ultimately is because he cares for us. David was like in his psalm, don't you know that his thoughts outnumber the grains, the thoughts for you outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. He knows the number of every hair on your head. I have this weird, like, image of, of God being a groupie. You ever met a groupie before? Groupies are crazy. Especially Justin Bieber's groupies. I was once in Sweden and I got to see it firsthand. Whew. I've never seen obsession like it. It was the wildest thing. He doesn't even need to post anything on Instagram. People know where he is. It just like, it's like wildfire. It just spreads all over the city. He's at this restaurant. He's here. He's there. We know where to get him. And they corner him and get photos and all this stuff. It's, it's a weird, obsessive thing. And I don't mean to demean God in this way. But God is kind of like a groupie. In the sense that he so cares for you. Like he's just there at the end of your bed, counting the hairs on your head. I love him. I love her. Oh, my gosh. Really? You are the object of his obsession. He so cares for you. Why else would Jesus die on a cross? This today is why we can empty ourselves of self-reliance and trust him, rely on him, and depend on him in uncertain and unpredictable times where we might experience some suffering and some pain and some hurt along the way, but know that he will raise us up. He will deliver us by his mighty hand. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, God, we... We're so thankful for your love towards us. God, your unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. God, we, we open up our lives and we, we embrace that today. It seems so counterintuitive, but, but we embrace it. God, we acknowledge our need of you. We humble ourselves before you. 
Oh, we thank you that you care for every single person here. Father, if people today are, are dealing with chronic sensations of anxiety, Lord, if people feel like they're being crushed under the weight of their own pessimism, they've lost sight of the future, they don't have hope. And God, I ask that you would birth hope once more, that you would open up our eyes and help us to see everything that you have got before us. We know that it's good. Lord, you are good and all you do is good. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love this morning. In Jesus' name.